Listeners, most of you may know clinical psychologist Jordan Peterson for his best-selling books about how to create order in your own life. Or perhaps you've heard of the podcast where Peterson's alignment with anti-trans propaganda has gotten him deplatformed from spaces as different as Twitter and Cambridge University. But you may not know that Peterson, who commands an internet audience of millions, has also published numerous video lectures about the nature of creativity. The worst thing for creative people is to not be creative because they just die. And it, because it's, 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 it's like maybe you're a tree with a few major branches, you know? That's your personality. So if you're extroverted, man, you can't be cut off from people because you just wither. And if you're agreeable, you have to be in an intimate relationship or you die, you know? And if you're conscientious, man, and, you, and you're unemployed, you're just going to eat yourself up because you have to have a duty and you have to carry a load because you just can't stand it otherwise. And open people have to be creative. They have to be because otherwise they die. They don't have any vitality. And so they're cursed with the necessity of putting a foot out into the unknown and making sense of it. And then they're also cursed with the necessity of trying to make a living while they're doing that, which they can't because you can't. It's almost impossible to monetize creative, creative action, as many of you who are creative will no doubt find out. If creative people don't create, as Peterson argues, they'll just die. In this way of thinking, creativity is an unquenchable urge. Like a shark who needs to keep swimming, expressing creativity is the only way for creative people to live, a need that the truly creative will risk anything for. In other words, the essence of being a creative person is the compulsion to be creative. That's what we call a tautology, an explanation that repeats the original assertion but never explains the term to begin with. What does it mean to be creative? As it turns out, although creativity sits at the center of many things we value as Americans, art, inventiveness, problem-solving, and all the culture industries, most people would be hard put to define what creativity is. However, to paraphrase Supreme Court Associate Justice Potter Stewart in the 1964 pornography case, Jacobellus v. Ohio, we know it when we see it. Today, being creative is almost seen as a right, a quality that when we are permitted or able to express it, will lead us to our best and most satisfying life, perhaps even to wealth, prominence, and recognition. But as it turns out, creativity has not always been a ubiquitous American value. In fact, Americans rarely talked about creativity until after World War II, when suddenly psychologists became curious about how the industries that had won that war could compete with the Soviet Union without taking on that nation's totalitarian mindset. Was there a human quality that could be cultivated in a free society? Something other than intelligence or the willingness to work hard? Something that could be tested, measured, and discovered in otherwise ordinary people, something that could push the nation to even greater achievements. That thing, they realized, was creativity, the capacity to look at a problem and solve it in a uniquely effective way, or be presented with an entirely new phenomenon or a well-known one, and harness the brain power of multiple people to understand it. As historian Sam Franklin came to realize in his new book, The Cult of Creativity, A Surprisingly Recent History, what began as a scientific inquiry 
with scientific hypotheses, spread like wildfire through Cold War America. The new American, whether a scientist, a military officer, a kindergartner, or a media professional, was urged to unleash creativity and given methods for doing so. While initially creativity was the province of men, by the 1960s, feminists seized on creativity as a human right that could only be achieved through what men already had, meaningful, paid work. Perhaps the best expression of the hold creativity had on American culture was in advertising. There, creatives, as they were called, were revered for their ability to tap into the psyche with counterintuitive commercials that conveyed feelings rather than information, and used humor to remind audiences that their product could solve a problem that hadn't even been named in the ad. I can't believe I ate that whole thing. You ate it, Ralph. I can't believe I ate that whole thing. No, Ralph, I ate it. I can't believe I ate that whole thing. Take two Alka-Seltzer. Join Sam and me for this episode of Why Now, where history and politics meet the challenge of today. And I'm your host, Claire Potter, a professor of history at the New School for Social Research, co-executive editor of Public Seminar, and the author of The Political Junkie Substack. This is Episode 23, Creative Fictions. Welcome to Why Now. Thank you, Claire. It's great to be here. Sam, we need to tell our listeners that we've known each other for about 20 years since Wesleyan University. You were a student, I was a faculty member, and now we're intellectuals together, which is so much fun. Ah, love that. (laughs) Yeah. So Sam, tell our listeners how you landed on the topic of creativity and how you got your arms around such a difficult subject. It was all around me, like creativity of the creative class, which I was supposedly a part of, and that felt really good. And then I went to graduate school and I moved to Providence, Rhode Island, which had just the year before dubbed itself the creative capital. And there was all this hype, I guess, about creativity and all these books about how it works. Jonah Lair wrote a book about it. There were just all these bestsellers. It was this thing, this value, this idea that seemingly everybody could get on board with, like everybody loved it, whether you were a liberal kindergarten teacher or a tech CEO or a mayor or whatever, like creativity was going to save the world. And that seemed odd for a number of reasons. It seemed like a vague word. And I was trying to figure out kind of how that came to be that this strangely vague word that could seemingly mean a lot of different things came to have such cultural power. And I was studying history and it seemed to me like it was maybe part of a larger rejection of Protestant values like thrift and efficiency and loyalty and stuff like that. I thought, oh, maybe it's like a countercultural 60s thing. And at the same time, Google had just come out with this tool. They had just digitized all these millions of books and had come out with this 
tool called the Google Ngram Viewer, where you could just type in any word or phrase and see its occurrence over time. And I just typed in creativity, just being curious about it. And it was this incredible hockey stick shaped curve where we almost didn't use the word at all, seemingly according to this, until like the 1950s. These two things came together and I was wondering, how did this idea so quickly become so dominant and, and capture our imagination so much? I went in search of that. So one of the things that you establish in the first chapter of the book is that it's psychology that becomes really interested in creativity, but it's a psychology that is in dialogue with Cold War priorities, with anxieties about the phase of industrialization that the United States is in after the war, the channeling of Americans into office work. Psychologists say, okay, we know how to measure intelligence, mm -hmm. but we don't know how to measure creativity. And we need to figure out what creativity is worth. So could you begin by telling us how does creativity rest on the prior measurement of intelligence, mm -hmm. value yeah. of intelligence? Right. It's a good question. Yeah. So creativity, it's it's just a word. And it's a word that, again, seems timeless, but psychologists had never used it before as a term of art. They had used things like inventiveness, occasionally originality, genius, intelligence. These were all sort of separate concepts. And in the 1950s, in, in the context of the Cold War, they realized that what they wanted wasn't just people who are very intelligent and could sort of solve math problems. What they needed was people who are very inventive as well. And there were some other sort of cultural, ideological things going into this that we can discuss. And so some of these psychologists decided that the thing they wanted to study was not how to measure intelligence, but how to measure something that they called creativity, which was not genius. It was more sort of general and widespread than that, but it wasn't as kind of ordinary as just cleverness or something. It was really the ability to come up with new stuff. And so they used a lot of the same kinds of assessment tools that they had been using to judge intelligence. But one thing that they had to add to it was open-ended tests because they figured creative ability, whatever that was, it couldn't actually be detected by a test that asked for the right answers to things because by definition, um, it was about coming up with new things. So they had to devise kind of a new set of tests that might detect this thing. And this was all, as you say, for the purposes of being able to staff large organizations in the military and engineering firms, which were just hiring thousands and thousands of newly minted engineers, all for kind of military and industrial applications. And so like one thing they came up with was um, how many different uses for a brick can you come up with in a minute? You know, so they had to sort of be able to quantify this kind of unquantifiable thing. And it was tricky for them to do, but they came up with clever little ways to do it. Tell me if I'm wrong about this, but it seems to me that creativity as it emerges as a concept is in some ways more democratic than intelligence. Yeah, well, it's I think it's as democratic as intelligence. It's more democratic than genius. And so according to the psychologists like J.P. Guilford, for example, who was the president of the American Psychological Association, who made a famous 1950s speech saying, we all need to start studying creativity. And that's kind of what started this creativity boom in psychology. 
he thought that we needed to get back to an older kind of fascination with, with geniuses, essentially, that intelligence tests sort of thought that they could identify geniuses, but they really couldn't. And we needed to get back to the research of Sir Francis Galton, who was the kind of father of eugenics and other quantitative psychology who wrote about geniuses and that we kind of needed to get back to that. But at the same time, it was a it was an era of mass society. What they wanted to look at, what they sort of in, in a sense invented and, sta- and kind of willed into being just by naming it and, and, and theorizing it was a trait that everyone might have in some degree and that you might be able to detect um, that wasn't as rarefied as genius. And the word for that that seemed to fit was creativity, a noun that kind of captured everything that could be meant by being creative from coming up with a little fix to a problem to you know coming up with a massive new uh, scientific theory or an oil painting or whatever. Well, and, and you also make the point, which I thought was really interesting, that the Cold War context is both that experts in the United States know they need new ideas, that the Soviet Union is over there sort of like funneling people into all of this hard mm. work and, mm-hmm. and so forth, and that the United States needs some different way to access the ideas they need to, to dominate in the world, but also that there's this sort of troublesome thought that mass society in the United States isn't that different from mass society behind the Iron Curtain, right? Mm, yeah, totally. Yeah. So after World War II in the United States, there was this renewed kind of individualism. I mean, it, it inflects everything. It's kind of the spirit behind a lot of the counterculture. It's a spirit behind a lot of the art and culture of the era. And it sort of awkwardly also manifests itself in corporate America and in the military, where the way that America was um, differentiating itself from its Soviet foe was that it was the land of in, of individual dignity and individual freedom. And, you know, the lesson of the kind of long progressive era, including in America for, say, um, research directors of large engineering firms that were responsible for innovation, had been that actually it was not individualism, but group work and highly organized, scientifically managed masses of well-paid experts, America's own development of the atom bomb, which was seen as this kind of failure of organization, uh, sort of a moral failure um, of putting all your faith in organizations so that there was no sort of moral individual at the helm. All of this sort of group work and highly organized mass society seemed sinister. And it also just didn't seem good sort of almost from a branding perspective. And so they went in search of something that would drive innovation that was not Soviet, that was not collective or collectivized, that was in a way not social, that was individual, even though they were trying to do so within these highly collectivized, highly social corporations and research laboratories. And so to name a trait like creativity that had all these connotations of of romantic artists and people sort of doing things just for the sake of creation, for their own sort of self-development and self-actualization was a very useful thing for them to be able to think about. You know, it also caused me to think about a concept that was so crucial to early American studies as you and I knew it, which was manifest destiny. The idea that there are all of these ideas that are just lying around waiting for people to discover them. And if you get Mm. all of these brains working together, the ideas will appear. 
and you can mm-hmm. chunk them all into one space and sort them out and figure out what to do. And this is really the impulse that takes Lodge in corporations, right? Yeah, but there's a crisis of faith in that. There's this optimism of the post-war era, this kind of boundless optimism that we see in you know Kennedy's moonshot and all this stuff. But there's also this deep anxiety that actually mass society is shutting down the dynamism that had made America great. So there was a lot of nostalgia at the time for the age of the lone inventor genius. So this is an era in which a lot of people write about Edison, <laughs> which is kind of interesting because Edison, if Edison taught us anything, it's that you should just pay a bunch of engineers a lot of money and they'll come up with stuff. But in the popular imagination at the time, he was this guy with a light bulb going off over his head. And there was this um, sense, largely inspired by the work of Joseph Schumpeter, the Austrian economist, who had written in the 1940s that this corporate structure was shutting down the dynamism of capitalist society by essentially making all the would-be genius entre- entrepreneurs salaried functionaries who who wouldn't have the motivation to really invent something new. There was anxiety that things were getting too big, too organized, too corporate, and that we needed to somehow find kind of new individualistic heroes. And obviously you see that in like Western movies and all kinds of other things, but I think you also see it in this figure of the creative individual that comes comes up out of this psychological and business discourse. Yeah, and of course, those creative individuals are also being uh, manifested in mass culture by the Beats and um, you know the Bohemian Life of Greenwich Village and so on and mm-hmm. so forth. So, how does how does the corporate culture and this dissident artistic culture how do they sort of come together in mm. the idea of creativity? Yeah, totally. I, I I think they were always kind of reacting against one another. I think creativity was corporate America's way of trying to bottle and tame the spirit of bohemia. So, you know, you'd have people like Abraham Maslow, the, the psychologist, talking to a room full of Air Force engineers about how, you know, if you want to unleash your creativity, you got to be a bit bohemian. You got to be a little crazy. You got to, you know, not worry about seeming homosexual. You got to kind of be a little weird. And, you know, of course, you know, they're going to go back to their offices and just trying to come up with new stuff again. But but there's this idea that if you kind of are a little bit more like the bohemians and the radicals, that you might come up with new ideas. Of course, the, the politics didn't come along with that. You know, there's a kind of an apolitics, an apolitical nature to the discourse of creativity, because the thing that you're raging against is some kind of general status quo. It's not like a specific status quo. It's just, it could be the status quo of the technology that you're trying to develop, or it could be the status quo of the business management regime that you're trying to innovate. But so you take what's supposed to be this kind of um, bohemian restlessness and love for novelty and kind of personal wildness, and it tries to fit that into the corporate context. You also say, and this may be obvious to listeners, but I think we should just put it out there, that the creative up to a certain moment in time is always male. Mm. And that's not just about the sort of patriarchal culture of the beat circles or the the divisions of labor in corporations and so on and so forth, but, but that the creative as he exists in the minds of all of these experts is always a man. Mm-hmm. And then Betty Friedan comes along and says, 
Well, actually women are creative too, and they need access to their own creativity, not just the ways they are told they are creative. So could you talk about the repurposing of creativity by feminism? You know, I, I tried to sort of figure out how far beyond Friedan it goes, but I mean, she was, she she counts, she, she matters. Uh, you know, she set a lot of the tone. When you read this mostly white men talking about creativity and kind of who's creative, the types of examples that they give are almost always white men. And that shows kind of who they thought mattered. It also shows who they were ultimately concerned about not being creative enough. But you also always have around the edges, like I write about the guy who invented brainstorming, Alex Osborne. He was this ad man and he had this kind of method for being more creative. He always said, you know, creativity can be really useful in the workplace. And, and that's mostly what he write, wrote about. But he would always also say, you know, and housewives can be creative too. Not many people know that, but actually they can be. <laughs> so there's this thing about creativity that also maybe sheds the baggage of the concept of a genius and that it maybe is more, a little bit more open to being feminized or accepting that women can also have it. But it's true that it's basically a, a male kind of discourse. And Friedan, yeah, she says, you know, the problem with this domestic sphere is that it doesn't allow women access to true creativity. There's an ersatz creativity of, uh, you know, mixing one egg in with the cake mix to make you feel like you're being creative. But really the tragedy of, of women being locked out of the kind of realm of male work is that they're not able to manifest the creativity that is inherent in them. And I think she relies on Maslow for some of that. And she relies kind of on her own intuition for that and obviously her own experience. And so it's kind of weird that she, instead of doing this move where she says, you know, domestic arts are creative. Quilting is creative. Traditionally feminine work is creative. Cooking is creative. She doesn't say that. She kind of accepts the masculinized idea of what is creative work and then argues for women's rights to that sphere based on the idea that we all are creative or should be able to be creative, that that's a human right. And it's interesting about Friedan that she locates that in work. Mm -hmm. It's, of course, work that she herself, as a journalist, was often shut out of, um, that it was very difficult to get hired as a woman journalist. Um, there's a lot of women she's working with who can't get mm -hmm. work in the fields they're trained in. Yep. And of course, you fast forward 40 years and you've got mommy bloggers saying, oh, my God, I left my law firm and now I am developing a true self by mm. knitting clothes for my baby and, totally. so on and, so, and having an organic garden. So we do see throughout this book that creativity goes in cycles. I would also be interested in your thoughts on advertising. You get to that tantalizingly late in the book, even though you keep mm. telling us that you're going <laughs> <laughs> um, and I learned some things about an industry I was briefly a part of about its mm. prehistory that I hadn't known. Like I hadn't known that the creative and account sides were not always separate. So talk to us a little bit about how advertising, which is one of the most creative of the creative industries and has been since the 1960s. How is that where ideals of creativity lodge and get developed? It's funny because we do think of advertising as the kind of ur creative profession. It's not art. We can't call it art really, but it's it's creative and we can all sort of agree on that. And we can agree that it's can be quite dynamic and quite original and all this stuff. But weirdly, the the language of creativity in a way exists in the advertising industry for a long time. 
So as far back as maybe the 1920s, they would they would make reference to the creative side of things, the people who made the ads. That's all it meant, right? Creative had a kind of connotation of the people who do art and copy. But the idea of creativity as this thing that is the industry's kind of unique selling proposition, so to speak, that came about during the era that I write about. And it's funny because it's almost like they were asleep at the wheel. You've got these psychologists who are working with engineers and people who don't have a reputation for being creative and they're developing this idea of creativity around them. And there's this conference that the advertising industry holds in New York City at the Waldorf Astoria Hotel in 1956, I think. And they say, gosh, you guys, there's all these people who are studying creativity and we haven't said a thing about it. We're creative, right? And so they have all these psychologists come in and talk to them. They have some jazz musicians performing. They have big advertising people, artists and um, writers and um, filmmakers talk about creativity. And of course, as a theme that goes throughout throughout all the book, which if in case it hasn't been clear, they're talking around in circles. Like no one can agree what creativity actually means. But this is a moment when the when the advertising profession realizes that it's not just that there are people who make ads and there are people who do accounts, but it's that the people who make ads are heroes are going to be the heroes of the industry. And they're going to shed this reputation. And Thomas Frank wrote this great book, The Conquest of Cool, where they are trying to shed this reputation. You can see this over the arc of Mad Men as well, of being these kind of sleazy martini drinking guys and rebranding themselves as these artistic, slightly bohemian individualist heroes who are nonetheless heroes of capitalism as well. The advertising industry in the 1950s and 60s, even though it is like more powerful than it has ever been, they're billing more than they've ever billed before. It's massive. They're also always being threatened or feel threatened with contraction, with regulation from Congress, because there's these books by Vance Packard calling them liars and manipulators. <laughs> the Hidden Persuaders is this book that they have this like terrible reputation. And I argue in the book that their embrace of, of creativity, which led to this kind of moment that is called that is remembered today as the creative revolution, was not just like an outpouring of new original ads, but was really a reorientation of the industry around this value of creativity that they say that is what they offer to the world. And I think you see the rep repercussions of that in the whole idea of the creative industries and creative agencies, which come to the rescue of sort of boring staid corporations and help them, you know, tell their stories and reach their audiences and all this. I think the whole thing about telling stories is really important. And, and you kind of slip it in there that there is actually a real Don Draper. And our <laughs> listeners- Great for Daniels, yeah. That's right. I, ho I yeah. hope our listeners have watched Mad Men, the AMC multi-season show about advertising. But there really is a person that Don Draper was based on. And can you tell us something about him? Yeah, well, I think Don Draper, as I understand it, was a bit of a, an amalgam of a few different characters. Let's see, one person who I think he's based on is Bill Bernbach, who is most famous for the series of- Volkswagen advertisements and some Hertz advertisements that took a totally new approach to advertising. It was a bit tongue in cheek. It was a bit kind of poking fun at the whole institution of advertising at all. And so that's what he's remembered for on the kind of consumer facing front. But from the industry perspective, he was adamant about no interference from clients. His writers, his artists would be the ones to 
tell the clients, the you know manufacturers, the companies, what they needed to show their consumers. And so it was a kind of an assertion of creative autonomy over the clients, but also over the research men. There was this advertising in the time was, according to the, the creative, was kind of run by these research people who would go do polls, consumer polling and testing. And they'd come up with all this data and they'd say, oh, we should, the, the logo should be red or this should be moved down or we should go with this slogan or that slogan. And so the these creative revolutionaries were saying, no, 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 it's not science. It's not logic. It's not reason and rationality. It's It's intuition. It's passion. It's my own creative impulse that will do the right thing and that will be most profitable. Well, and they have genuine public relations problems to solve. I mean, Volkswagen mm-hmm. is a good example. Those ads about Volkswagen come out in 1960. It's 15 years after the end of World War II, 15 years after the Holocaust has been revealed and so on. And a lot of Americans are like, no, that's a Nazi car. I won't buy it. Mm-hmm. <laughs> that's a genuine problem if you're yeah. going to sell that car in the yeah. United States. Um Similarly, when I was working in advertising, the agency I worked at had the AT&T account and the problem they were trying to deal with was the cost of long distance, that people didn't want to make long distance calls because they thought it cost too much money. So you had to persuade people it was actually worth spending money on their family. And that's how it came up with the reach out and touch someone, reach out and just say hi. You override the problem with a higher value. And that's, yeah. that's how the creativity solves the problem. Totally. And that that's how they, they kind of see, again, this term, this idea of creativity as having this kind of artistic and humane connotations. It stands for something that can speak to people on a real human level, like art does, right? But it's, it's to different ends. If art is for self-expression or the betterment of humankind, advertising is for selling, which again, takes on this term creativity to do that kind of work, connecting with human beings and selling them things they don't need or don't know they need, right, right. which is, which is creative. It, it, just a quick little aside. I found in the literature, there was this term creative advertising long before I expected to see it. And what I realized is it didn't mean creative advertising, like clever or original or artistic advertising. It meant advertising that created a new market, creative in the sense of generative. That's more what creative used to mean. And after the developments that I'm chronicling in the book, creative starts to mean something more like a personal capacity to be creative. And so now the term creative advertising would mean something very different. And it's a capacity that tell me if I'm wrong about this, most people have, but not everyone can access. So one of the key aspects of the creativity industry are people developing all these techniques for access. Mm -hmm. Exactly. Because creativity can be said to be our birthright as human beings, which is like a, a nice message, but yet we are all creative, right? Or demonstrably, and, and, and we should be more creative. And Today, there's a lot of talk of kind of, especially with AI, but for decades now, there's been this talk of job security, that if if you want to stay afloat in the rapidly changing economy, you need to be creative. And that actually starts in the 50s and 60s. And so there's a market for people saying, yes, everyone is creative. It's a myth that only geniuses are creative, that only the select few are creative. However, you may need some help 
unlocking your own creativity. And here we're going to help you. And so you have people like Alex Osborne, who I mentioned earlier, who was an advertising executive who retired and became a brainstorming guru and spread his brainstorming methods all throughout the world through the Creative Education Foundation. It was an organization that he set up and books that he wrote, and they would send trainers, essentially proto-creativity consultants. Now we have thousands of them, but back then it was sort of just them. They would send them all around the world and train various groups, the American Legion or GE engineers or whatever in uh, in brainstorming techniques, which was, I can sort of, yeah, which was a sort of a weirdly specific technique for unleashing this ineffable force called creativity. And so there were very strict rules to it. Judgment had to be suspended. You had to be freewheeling and build off of other people's ideas. And then a secretary, a lady, it was specified in most of the texts, would sit in the corner and write down all the ideas as fast as she could. And then at the end of the session, those ideas would get passed to the higher ups and they would sort of pour through the list and decide which ones were potentially good ideas. And this was a way of, again, within the context of a corporation, uh, and within the context of a group, trying to make that group context um, work, but trying to break out of the stagnation and conformity that corporations were said to induce by having this kind of temporary carnivalesque moment, uh, topsy-turvy moment where you could yell out anything you wanted and there were no bosses and you could be weird and wild. It was always very controversial whether it actually worked. The advertising people hated it because they, again, they thought, no, we're creativity lives in the mind of the special individual. But um, it took off. And we obviously still do it to this day, though most of us don't realize that there are very strict rules to it. It's interesting that creativity has also become this sort of connection to other kinds of changes that aren't so good, like the idea that you can just turn your side hustle into a job and you're sort of monetizing your creativity, something that you might've just done at home, like make jewelry or hmm. paint tiles or whatever, that that can become your passion, the thing that you love and you can become rich from it. That kind of plays into sort of neoliberal take care of yourself because there aren't real jobs that are take will take care of you anymore. <laughs> yeah, absolutely. But also, Sam, um, you mentioned the post-it as the sort of absolute pinnacle of the creative tool. Can you can you talk to people about post-its for a second? Because I use them all the time. I love post-its. Oh yeah. So how do post-its become this sort of sign of the creative process at work? Oh, it's so funny because the actual sort of origin story of the post-it is a story of a mistake, right? It was this, uh, I don't know, 3M or some engineer who was trying to make a glue and he accidentally made one that didn't stick or something. And he invented the post. So it's actually like not a very good illustration of some kind of deliberate creative process at work. Nonetheless, it's been it's been taken up, especially by this movement called design thinking, which is has sort of direct direct descendant or slightly indirect descendant of brainstorming and synecdoche, some of the uh, one of the other methods that I talk about. But it's a it's a more contemporary creative thinking method, which says that designers have a designerly way of thinking, which is inherently creative and can be put to use for not just design, but for all kinds of things. And this was a claim that brainstorming made as well, that this thing that we use in advertising can be applied to anything. And design thinking loves using post-it notes to proliferate ideas up on a wall and then re be able to reorganize them. I 
currently work in an industrial design engineering department where every time I walk by a room with, of course, a clear glass door, there are just post-it notes flying all over the place. There's post-it notes on every surface. So clearly like people love this method of kind of brainstorming and arranging ideas. I haven't personally been able to make it work for me, but I'm glad you have. But yes, it's kind of become this icon of the design thinking movement. You know, it works and it doesn't work for me. You know, it depends sometimes if all the post-its sort of fall off the wall and (laughs) back up by the cleaning staff, then it's not working so well. Sam, this is the last question I ask everybody. Why should our listeners read this book now? Oh, gosh. I I think there's a lot of answers to that question, but I feel like what really motivated me to begin with was this confusion that I had about how something that should feel so good, this kind of celebration of creativity, could somehow feel so bad. It's a really big theme that's animating the book, even though it's not in there as much. You sort of mentioned neoliberalism. This culture of do what you love and have passion for your work, this idea that work should be play, should feel like play, this idea that if you're not making something new, you're not really contributing to society and you're not really being a fully formed human. All of these messages that I just kind of absorbed as a child and teen growing up in this milieu started to seem like they had a really dark side that could encourage self-exploitation and make you really unhappy. And actually more importantly, demean kinds of work that I think are super important and kinds of ways of being and ways of working like repetitively. And if you like doing that and care work, that's more emotional and all sorts of work that could not be considered creative, that this cult of creativity lifts up rarefied kinds of work and makes it seem like a meritocracy when it's really just kind of compounding inequality. And so I think the cult of creativity takes our allegiances and our sentiments away from a lot of really important aspects of our society and our economy. And this book might help you tease those things apart. It might help you realize that you're good enough, you're smart enough without being recognized as creative. And that if you get sort of a funny feeling about all this creativity talk, you're not crazy. That's it for today's show. You can go to the Political Junkie Substack at clairepotter.substack.com for show notes and to listen to more episodes, leave a comment, or ask a question. You can subscribe to Political Junkie for free, which gets you one newsletter a week that may or may not include a podcast. Or you can pay as little as $5 a month to get every podcast and every newsletter delivered straight to your desktop two times a week. You can also participate in subscriber chats. You can subscribe to Why Now on Apple iTunes, Spotify, and Google Podcasts. Please leave a rating and a comment so that other listeners can find us. Please share this podcast with a friend who loves history, politics, and smart conversation. Why Now is supported by the New School for Social Research and by paying subscribers to Political Junkie. Why Now and Political Junkie are written, recorded, edited, and produced by me, Claire Potter. 
Show notes, technical assistance, and research are by Emma Kern. My opening theme is by Galaxy News, and my closing theme is by Avocado Junkie. You can find both of these terrific artists on soundstripe.com. That's all for now. I'll see you next time.